0: Hello and welcome to the Astroflight Flight Simulation Podcast, where we navigate the digital world through art and culture. If you're hearing this message, it means you're listening for free on iTunes or Spotify, which I thank you for and invite you to do more of. However, I want to let you know that if you're left wanting more, there's a lot more content on my Substack page, which is astroflight.substack.com. You can access my Substack through my Twitter page, which is at AFSCAST. That's at A-F-S-C-A-S-T. There's a link to my Substack in my bio and in my pinned tweet. On my substack you'll find a lot of long-form content as well as podcast episodes that never make it to itunes and spotify and if you choose the paid subscriber option you'll have access to early release podcasts and podcast episodes that are not available anywhere else except for as a paid subscriber to my substack that's astroflight.substack.com i hope you enjoy the show hello welcome back to the astroflight simulation podcast where we navigate the digital age through art and culture. Today I'm joined with perhaps one of the best equipped men for doing such a task, Mr. Gio <laughs> Panachetti. You know him, you love him. Uh, you're not here for me, you're here for him. Give him a, give him give give yourself oh, an introduction, my friend.
1: That. Well, I'm certainly well equipped. Uh, no, He is very well <laughs> equipped. Uh, well, we were just talking about being in between a thought um, and being in, in the completion of a thought. And I think I like to say that um, a lot of what makes a great I guess, see, podcasting is such like a, it's like, it's like what Tool said about the word metal. I think it was Adam Jones where he's like, I want to take a shower. When I hear the word podcast I'm like, oh, I want to take a shower. But I think a conversationalist would be better because I think um, being like, having an ability to be in a completion of a thought is in some ways what makes a great podcaster or, or whatever conversation. But then that, that in itself sounds pretentious. Well, so I, I guess- any intro I say about myself will ultimately be pretentious. So maybe, um, other than like artist, writer, um, printmaker, failed academic, that's what I usually say. That's like my thing. Failed so, academic? Um, In what failed field? academic? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: well, my job yeah. here, part of my my mission here, is to make myself make convince people that I'm as smart as I find myself. So I prefer. There the, you go. I prefer the term interlocutor. Rather than interviewer or guest. But no, That's I think mean, it's a good yeah. word
1: because you're to be an interviewer, I guess, to, to have to be a host is like in a way to quote Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park, um, it's a violent penetrative act. I mean <laughs> <Yeah>. create, <laughs> it's true. You are penetrating into the subject and
0: uh, from now on, when I approach people about being on my show, I'm gonna start asking them to allow me to penetrate their minds.
1: <laughs> uh, do you want like a very spicy take on television? Not spicy, but like an original take to this podcast that I've never re- released before. Yeah, that's why you're here, okay. brother. Okay, <laughs> that's so why you're here. Did you ever watch the show Oz back in the day?
0: Yeah, I have seen a few episodes. The HBO show about prison. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: The uh okay, so I binged li- lately. I've uh, binged Oz like a few months ago. And there was this scene where there was I it was Oz was such a weird show because I think it truly was a cultural jumping off point because it it was the first show that HBO actually did because even before the Sopranos it was right before the cusp of the Sopranos and the world of the 1990s or the 1980s in the 90s before in the world of the 2010s or the early 2000s was starkly different and you could see this in Oz for instance you have this recognition of like God and religion and the metaphysical that was just like stated outright. And it wasn't like nowadays where most shows just outright ignore it. But there was this one moment where they would have these monologues and one of them, when a prisoner dies, they have this monologue later on in the series. And one of them was the, um, mafia, uh, Don, or he was a capo, um, Antonio Napa, who was, if you remember, he was the assassin, uh, from Scarface, the, I forget what his name was, but he was the one that wanted to blow up the car with the kids in it, and then uh, Scarface like pops him. Remember? Uh, so Antonio Napa, he well, has Was it monologue. Sosa?
0: Was it Sosa? Yeah, he was Sosa. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So he uh, had this monologue where he he was going through it in the middle of Oz Emerald City w- was called the complex where you could see every prison cell. They had this like TV complex. And the TVs became like part of the series, right? In terms of like what the shows they were watching and newsreels and so forth. And he said that, you know, and he's dead, right? So his ghost is going around these prisoners. And he's like, well, I see the TV. They just download you with this information. And you sit there and you watch and you're passive. And it's like, it's, it's what you were saying about. I guess the critique that people like McLuhan and Alul had of that older, very boomer orientated medium of television, where you are the recipient of a univocal medium. And I thought that was funny because this was in the later season. This was just before I would say the HBOification of culture and media became a thing where HBO released like you know, multiple Ergo upon the world of television and media in general. Even nowadays you have shows like euphoria, which is basically a bunch of like, you know, androgynous zoomers. Um, it's, it's really interesting how back in the day television, there was this weird moment in the 1990s where television had this ability to critique itself. And even I think what um, surprisingly, and I know he's like, verboten in terms of right wing circles, but he's a great, brilliant writer, uh, Sam Chris. He had this article recently critiquing the new Matrix film. And he said that there was this weird moment in the 90s with films like Existence by Cronenberg, Videodrome, um, and The Matrix, of course, where Hollywood was almost like warning you about, okay, go into digital simulacra, go into mediafication of all reality even further and see what happens. But nowadays, he said, the difference is, it's listen and believe. It's no longer question everything. It's like, you have to listen and believe.
0: Yeah. Well, dude, this is a huge uh, project I'm working on. And I have tweeted about it. I wrote an an article about Zero H P Lovecraft's work on this Mm. topic exactly. So if you think about, compare and contrast, say, The Matrix to Ready Player One. I never read the book, but the the movie Ready Player One, right? Oh, bro. If you think about it, if you think about it, hyper-reality... Right. The digital realm, this this what I'm calling the astral flight simulation. It's it's this uh, it's a simulation of the transcendent realm that pre-modern cultures believed was real. And they believe that this transcendent realm dictated the goings on uh, from their higher plane on the material yeah. realm. Right. Yeah. So we now have a digital, uh, you know, Philip K. Dick talks about the iron prison and he says that uh, we're being locked in the iron prison uh, in this timeline. Uh, by the way, Philip K. Dick is the godfather of all of this. If you read the oh, exegesis, yeah. if you read the exegesis, that's oh, what yeah. the exegesis is about. Uh, Bap also calls it an iron prison. I'm calling this a digital prison, and because if you notice, right, that the propaganda in the '90s, The Matrix, everyone wakes up and finds themselves trapped inside it, and they're zombies in the real world. And the whole point of the plot of the movie is to escape the the uh the plato's cave like uh immateriality and uh uh illusion illusion thank you
1: maya yeah <laughs> <laughs> to
0: escape to escape the illusion into reality and then start yeah. over again right but in ready player one that's the complete opposite is true they're all stuck in the desert of the real in this like megalopolis of uh, stacked high-rises of of a trailer park right literal favela (laughs) exactly and the whole point of the movie is to like giddily plug in to the digital realm and like uh try to immerse yourself in it you know happily because because there's nothing left for us here right and zero hp lovecraft is like the the counter to that the, the juxtaposition to that because in his uh work people are doing the same thing they're 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 plugging in to the digital realm, and then they but they realize that it's a trap, and they realize right. they're trapped there. And I didn't finish uh, Ready Player One. I tried to finish it before this. Me and you went live, so don't give me the spoiler. Did, but, did you? But from um, what I've seen about it, though, yeah. The, have you seen it? Not only did I see it,
1: but I saw it in theaters. The reason why was because I wrote a semi-popular article like destroying it back in the Thermidor magazine days. Okay. And well, you I want to ask you me. if you read it, but I'll send it. It's in my, um, in my WordPress blog. Give us a little uh, synopsis
0: though. Do you, do you agree with my estimation? How, oh, how definitely the, the tone shifted from being trapped in the matrix to being like desperately trying to get into the matrix?
1: Yeah, more or less. I said that because I was focusing at the time on how, um the sort of like boomer colonization of youth culture through nostalgia is a way in which sort of postmodernity reaches its quintessence. like it's the ultimate postmodern referent because it only references itself meaning it only references spielbergo right like, yes that's
0: exactly what i exactly. think exactly
1: <laughs> and Sorry. for for instance um a really good critique i i mentioned this on prudentialist stream cuz me him and furious we did this four hour long we're not even finished yet four hour long critique of the film ben-hur and the mo- the moment that to me is like my favorite scene in the whole film was the first moment that we met christ where you don't see his face he doesn't talk and he gives ben-hur the water and like i just thinking about it once makes me want to tear up where the roman centurion sees the face of christ and all of a sudden his anger and his hatred it just peels away into a form of shame and 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 longing in some ways. And uh, the best part was back when they had the actual decent writers. The Simpsons had the part in the film festival, which I believe had a spun-off um, with uh, Lovitz's character, the film critic. The, the critic was actually a good show, uh, but the during the film festival... Burns he hires the cheap Mexican equivalent of Spielberg, Sr. Spielbergo, and they have like E.T. They have uh Zapata where he is uh Pancho Villa, and the the absolute best critique of that sort of self-referential world that Spielberg created was when they had Ben Hur, and. Mr. Burns is Christ. He gives Ben-Hur a modern water bottle and he says, drink up, Jutta Ben-Hur. And, and, and you know, Charlton Heston looks up and he says, you truly are the king of kings. Where it's a total inversion of the original Ben-Hur where there is no word said. You don't see the face of Christ and it is, they, they, they recognize each other. So in a way, the sort of violation of what media was, what Hollywood was, which was on par with uh, the Kino cinema was on par with the greatest works of art in human history. Now it's sort of like this 80s, like 90s retrograde nostalgia culture of like cheap plastic that is now the franchise becomes the holy symbol. And Ready Player One, I think was the best example of that. And, of course, The Simpsons itself has become the best example of being an absolute, you know, cheap date to modern culture instead of critiquing it. Um, And so you have this cycle of what the art critic uh, botz Borstein calls deculturation, where culture now subsumes itself to an anti-culture that is based upon, like things such as endless consumption, endless globalization of all culture, which really is a destruction of unique culture. And I highly recommend that book, by the way, Deculturation. I think you can find a PDF if it's too expensive. Um, So in in a way, you can see this play out in real time as culture and, or rather, an anti-culture and the medification of all reality seeps into politics, seeps into our everyday consciousness. You can see now... With like the Six and the Q Shaman and the Qmers, the Boomers, how them growing up on this television reality, now having to be thrusted into the politics of the digital age, now you have this like perfect aesthetic picture of the Q Shaman, this like, you know, neo-digital barbarian, this like data pagan and a cyber vegan, to quote Sam Hyde, uh, is like violating the consciousness of like Traditionally like quote unquote established news media now the quote unquote established news media has to become a fabulation machine or rather it has to admit to the fact that media in general has always been this like weird simulation fabu- fabulation machine is spectacle
0: so well, one of the things in the next segment i, I hope i'm making to... sense by no, the way, you're making perfect, <laughs> no you're making perfect no you're making perfect sense man one of the things i want to talk to you about in the next segment when we when we talk about modern art abstract art and things like that mm-hmm. is is the dialectic relationship that different mediums have with each other so oh, yeah. the yeah television affects painting the way it affects literature the way the Ooh. internet affects painting and photography uh, and all that I've and, never been
1: asked that before, by the way. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. That's why
0: I've I've been up your ass recently about trying to get you on here because yeah. you're always being interviewed, but I never I never see you talk about that. Um, so we're kind of giving a little preview to to section two, because what you're saying, uh, the dialectic that that makes art possible with reality, the dialectic between art and reality, has right. been has been has been cut off. It's been it's been obliterated by the digital medium. And oh, this man. is what Baudrillard yes. talks yes. about. This Holy is what crap. Baudrillard talks about when he says the hyperreal is a nebula. And he says sometimes, yeah. sometimes art affects the sh- form of the of the hyperreal, and sometimes the hyperreal affects the form of the real world, uh, reality. Uh, and I think now we have uh, totally shifted to the point where hyperreality is 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 uh, it's sort of mediating reality, and it's it's determining the form of reality. And uh, with Ready Player One, when I say digital prison, you know, it works on many levels because the characters in The Matrix and in uh, Ready Player One are in the digital prison because they, they go online or they jack in as, yeah. as uh, William Gibson coined it in the Neuromancer. Oh, nice. So, so they're cut off from reality in that sense, but also as a piece of art, as a work of art. It is no longer uh, in dialectic with reality or or some other artistic medium. It's in dialectic with itself. It's in dialogue with itself. Right. So so yeah. um, so televisual culture is the the world, the Heideggerian world uh, or groundedness out of which uh, digital media arises. However, right. the postmodern world is already, as Jameson tells us, ahistoric, historic uh, and and also uh, it has a break with the past. Um so he talks about, for example, uh, Jameson talks about how, for example, the diamond dust shoes by Van, uh, by by Warhol is sort of in communication. for those who him. don't
1: know this is from his book, his magnum opus um, Postmodernism, Logically capitalism.
0: right and he yeah. traces how Warhol's uh, diamond dust shoes is in conversation with Van Gogh's peasant boots and peasant and Van Gogh's peasant boots are actually, Uh, In conversation, or actually, depiction of something that exists in the world, that is sort of, uh, sort of, um, it it sort of uh, ushers to or 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 harkens to a real state of affairs in the world, a reality that people live, and it's embedded in that world, right? So we're already
1: said in the origins
0: of the work of art, yeah. Yeah. So already we're sort of de-worlding the shoes and reifying them, right? right, to say something about that world, right? But then Even the
1: Air Jordan, in a way, is kind of like that. What when
0: is do you that? really
1: think? the The Air Jordan shoes, how oh, the they Air become right, exactly. a status symbol among, well, you know, certain certain youths of an inner city variety. Yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of like the greatness of Air Jordans becomes itself a cultural signifier. Well,
0: I think how it relates to what I'm saying is it completely is completely cut off from any connection to Michael Jordan. None of the people right. wearing them now. Uh, I, I assume there's people in the world who don't even know that Michael Jordan was a basketball player. Uh, but, but whether they do or not, it's going to happen someday. He's going to die. The shoes are going to keep perpetuating themselves and they're going to be completely set adrift into this conceptual world where they no longer have anything to do with basketball or Michael Jordan. Um, they, they've, they've kind of uh, acquired their own new cultural uh, relevancy and their cultural uh, economy. But what I was trying to say to, fin- to complete my thought is that uh, it keeps getting, the, the work of art keeps getting disconnected and keeps getting further and further pushed away from reality. And it no longer refers back to a real state of affairs. Right. So the, the nostalgia factor becomes extremely heavy handed. Uh, it's, it's, it's throughout pretty much all the 2010s, but Ready Player One is maybe the top example of that. Just starting off with a, with a, uh, with a uh, uh, Van Halen song, that the young people who are into video games watching the movie have never heard Van Halen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh David Lee Roth is dead. Oh no, excuse me, Eddie Van Halen is dead.
1: Yeah, I can't uh, believe that. I, I even forgot that he died, man. I know. And I'm not a so, biggest, I'm not the biggest Van Halen fan, but like so this the fact ahistoricity that, and this yeah. this
0: self-referentiality is is another kind of layer to the digital prison um that you were talking about, that there is no embeddedness, right? Uh, right. Anymore because you're 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 no longer referring back to the world. You're referring back to like previous media.
1: Yeah. Well, the the critique that people would have at this line of thinking would be, well, what about fantasy and sci-fi? That doesn't refer to an actual world. It does in a way because the greatest sci-fi writers have referred to either state of affairs that will happen, like Philip K. Dick, or a state of affairs that it's already there but as a possibility or a hauntology that. Consumes the real, like Heinlein was a good example. And I'm not even the biggest sci-fi, like I've never read like Herbert, I've never read um Ballard. I think Ballard is very popular among the Landians.
0: Um yeah, but like uh Tolkien. Tolkien is Tolkien, a, yeah. an allegory. Exactly. For but European th- culture. Yeah, at exactly. T- at that time. It, that story is embedded in the European culture of his yeah. generation.
1: And look at what Hollywood did to it. it Made it into a nerd fest, unfortunately. Instead of well, a, I mean, dude, we're well, talking about
0: just look at the difference between the first three Lord of the Rings trilogy and then The Hobbit. It's just it's yeah. it's, it's the yeah. and you talked about HBO, HBO's whole thing in like the digital medium itself, right? The 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 sort of essence of that uh, storytelling is serial, right. serialization.
1: Exactly. So exactly. you
0: take you take a trilogy where each book in the trilogy is its own movie right and that's on that comes out on the transition between uh analog and digital so it's like a digitification of the lord of the rings but it's still grounded in the books but then by the time you get to the hobbit movies you're like deep deep into the digital world and the digital realm and uh digital culture is sort of like uh, obfuscating analog culture and literary culture so you 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 sort of like uh you sort of like uh parasitize the source material for every last drop of vitality that it has and you you suddenly have these three gargantuan movies that are like totally removed from what's going on and they're just eye candy they're just digital eye candy it's like the people making the movie are having a ball giddily laughing to themselves making this uh spectacle this digital spectacle and it's completely cut off from you know the reality that it's supposed to be based on so the serialization has kind of like reached its apogee in my opinion right. with with the hobbit movies because you take one kind of tight story with its constituent parts and you just stretch them out. And this I talked about this with Conan with the the walking dead too. It's the same thing. Oh with, really, eh? With the night yeah. of the, the night of the living dead movies it's a trilogy. Yes. And but yes. now we just stretch it out and serialize it to ad infinitum. And, and then no... to the point
1: where there's ridiculous. And now we have zoomers in the uh wor- what's it called world beyond my mother watches that show because I watched um Fear and the original one with my mom and uh it's very funny how now zoomer like racially and uh, sexually ambiguous zoomers are now surviving in that same zombie world. So it's kind of funny, which I mean I well, I, I had so, so so many spicy takes about The Walking Dead, one of them being like how is everyone like how are there still lesbians like fertility age women still in the walking dead world? Cause like you'd figure if humanity was dead, I know I'm not going to too, too spicy, well, too spicy.
0: <laughs> let's 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 take our break because uh, yeah, I wanted to hold off on this conversation to the second half, but we're deep into it. So let's take our yeah. break. And when we come back, we'll, we'll finish, you know, yeah. I'll, let you, I'll yeah. let you have the first word as well. All right, welcome back. Uh, We're done with our break, and we're gonna take up where we left off. Um, What
1: buffer music are you using, by the way? Can I choose it? Um, Um,
0: it it depends on copyright. I have. Oh, okay,
1: uh, okay, yeah. Then don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I do have
0: permission from a um, from a uh, really good uh, vaporwave artist to use a lot of his stuff. So I'm really psyched about that. When this, by the time this comes out, you'll hear that. And then my really good friend who goes by the name of zante it's like dante with a z his at is edenic jesus on twitter i think i uh, have seen him yeah. yeah yeah i'm sure you have he, he he's a paisan uh he will uh he's making some custom music for me he's already sent me about three or four beats uh, but he says he's going to have nice. another 10 ready for me so that's going to be the intermission music for now i got to figure out copyright but that's boring yeah. technical stuff the audience doesn't care i use my
1: friend philip daniel's compositions he's an v- amazing um I, how would you describe him uh, Classical modern composer
0: and, Yeah uh, I never heard yeah, of him
1: he's, uh, If you go to some of my videos On my YouTube channel Jenner Productions um, His music is all over the place On my channel But he also has a YouTube channel And uh, I'm actually doing this thing Where he has a Seven song su- suit Or suite I forget what you, how you pronounce it And I'm doing These accompanying mono prints That are based off of the titles he uses So well that's um, cool yeah you know i amazing. wanted to get
0: into discussing your art and in relationship yeah. to the the dialectic and the dialogue i was talking about between art and the world but but, but, but during our, the, yeah, yeah during our break you said you had some more thoughts about ready player one and the walking dead these are two i think these are two of the most important uh franchises or or pieces of work to come oh, out yeah. if you want to talk about the digital age and digital culture and art i think those are probably two of the top 10 most important things so please we'll uh, we'll get to your stuff uh we'll we'll use that yeah. as a
1: yeah don't worry about it <laughs> um, this is more um interesting well not more interesting but at the current moment um so one of them would be about ready player one um i will uh i should send i'll send you it and you could link it to people it's in my essays called content minded volume one on my old wordpress blog but i've since moved to substack uh, but i use it as an archive And I talk about, because I was reading the Sam Chris article on it at the time too, where he talks about how the sort of the imagination of the boomer is a a force of the past colonizing the present and making the future impossible in terms of youth culture. And to me, I think that when it comes to like my, I mean, you're, you're older than me, but like, would you consider yourself Gen X or millennial? Probably Gen X. I, I don't know. You're well, outing yourself well, as well, Gen no, X. No, no, no. It's okay.
0: I don't mind. I, <laughs> I like being a Gen X because it feels like the last real generation of like. <laughs> yeah. Although so, I would say so Gen I'm X was responsible for. I'm technically. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's a different conversation for a whole different episode because we could talk yeah, about yeah. that for hours. Yeah, who, who fucked the country? <laughs> it seems to be that uh, it seems to be though that everyone agrees that it was the boomers. But let's set that aside to answer your question. But when real, it comes, to, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Real yeah. quickly, I guess I'm technically Gen Y. I guess Gen Y is like seventy, born in seventy seven to to seventy nine, or seventy six to seventy nine. Whereas uh, Gen X is before that, and Gen mm-hmm. uh, Millennials are after that. But I feel Gen X though because I came up in the '90s and I was old enough in the '90s. I was yeah. born. I was born in 79. So I was old enough in the 90s to like fully experience that culture. You know what I mean? Nice. So that's how that's why I feel Gen X and I've talked to younger Millennials who also said they feel Gen X Hmm.
1: I I'm like what they consider core millennial like born in the very early 90s Uh born in 92.
0: Um, yeah, my wife is a millennial and yeah Even things. Oh, good I... job, bro <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nice, um Like, yeah, so with millennials, I think the driving force of it and the reason that boomers were able to inflict what I would call cultural psychic terrorism upon their kids with uh, basically the most mainstream of blockbuster franchises and uh, cultural tropes is that millennials are really the crossover generation between one world and the other. I mean, this is obvious in that we have this terrifying and crippling nostalgia complex because our psyche has been forever bifurcated between the analog and the digital, between the real, the desert of the real and what comes after it, its simulation. So we really couldn't, we weren't equipped to handle like real life. I hate to say this. I mean, the Zoomers are worse than us in a lot of different ways, but I think millennials were the generation of the Petri dish that experimented on what life would be like when the psyche has been rendered asunder. By the digital, and I think that um my good friend I don't know if I should mention her on this podcast, but uh my good friend Catherine D. Uh she talks about this a lot. I
0: don't even know who that is, dude.
1: Uh default friend. Um oh
0: yeah you can you can name anybody you want as long. as oh, Okay
1: know. yeah yeah um because I don't like a lot of people a lot of bad people don't like her but um and she's aware of
0: it don't worry about it, but um I barely know who she is man I yeah. barely know who she is
1: she she's a friend of mine and
0: she talks she a on lot your about show I heard her I heard her on yeah. your show. But how is she? I was uh, on
1: her show. We had a great podcast on her after yeah. the orgy podcast. Um, uh, that's the name of her show, after the orgy. Yeah, isn't that with, a Baudrillard uh, essay? Yes, that's why. Ah, that's, <laughs> that's why. Oh,
0: well, shout out, <laughs> shout out
1: to that. But, uh, because she talks about millennial 2010s like sexuality and Tumblr culture and how a lot of it was informed by these media tropes and how a lot of like modern, I guess, millennial sex posy feminism was in in itself like just another outgrowth of this like hyper real, lay capitalist machine that just ended up with disastrous consequences. And I think we're old enough now to realize the disastrous consequences of it. Um, but when it comes to sort of the way that media has depicted the youth and youth, youth culture in particular, um, Ready Player One to me cemented the idea of, as a millennial, you are trapped and there's no way out. And as a Zoomer, you're trapped and there's no way out of the nostalgia, fabulation, industrial complex. Well, that, as someone, I got to you know, jump in
0: here. As someone who hasn't finished the film, I'm going to go do it as soon as we're done. Um, does it stay all the way through that it's preferable? It looks like they're encouraging. Oh, it's the, like, it's oh, like- Do you want me to spoil it for you? I mean, it looks like to me, it's basically Willy Wonka. And yes. instead of candy, it's the digital video game world.
1: In the end, they had literally, I think, Spielberg. He realized halfway through that. It's like, wow, how can I get out of this? This is terrible. But in order to like sort of shill his own um, blight upon the cultural landscape, he came up with like the most half-assed solution near the end. You'll see it's like terrible. It's just like the ending of variety player one is such a piss off because you have, for example, the ideas that are very... Older than people think when it comes to like working within a VR simulation, and you achieve like you know crypto points, and you become like some kind of Squid Game slavery factory in the VR pod. Um, you also have ideas. For instance, you were talking about H.P. Lovecraft. His one short story, um, what was it called? The one, the one before the other short story that came out recently, where it was about God-shaped how hole or? no, not God shaped. Oh, the one with this, the pods yes this was the working one where you have like the vr tech um on my youtube channel i i did this series where i critiqued this wired magazine back page special it was called artifacts from the future and they did it kind of humorously it was basically ads for products in the future and there's this other uh organization i am known i'm going total uh widener over here but there is this organization it's affiliated with the rand corporation called the institute for the future and they also have this series called artifacts in the future which i'm going to release a video on it this week actually on my youtube channel and they talk about stuff that's very similar to what zhp was talking about in that one short story about how to incentivize right behavior to incentivize you Um, being like a maximum corporate wagey productivity machine, there will be technology through the VR Neuralink port that will, for instance, say, if you were like screwing around at work and watching a YouTube video, it will create like a sharp, painful sensation in your limbs in order to like word you off from it. Or it will like, literally, you'll have your Google Glass and it will block out uh, the seed oil options from the grocery aisle or something like that. Um, and I wonder if ZHP is actually like came across this Institute for the future. But, uh, I just find it funny how both ready player one and the walking dead, they serve that similar cultural purpose of now the present will be colonized. The future, sorry, the future will be colonized. If we go along with like the tech determinist, like we're going to have the VR technology that will be colonized by the past and by the boomer world order. And also in The Walking Dead, when the culture becomes ossified through collapse, that will also be a logical extension of the present, because even our vision of collapse is colonized by the present.
0: Hang on, say that again. The future is ossified by the past.
1: And the present, yes. The eternal present, which is this sort of current like millennial Zoomer, but boomer created like it's actually what i meant order, about
0: right? uh serialization because it's like dragging the present moment out ad infinitum as a yes to exactly previously yes. the novel yeah. would have like a beginning middle and end we're no longer right. on the aristotelian uh it's the eternal uh, model present. Yeah. so okay so uh, c- continue with that thought that's actually i have a question on deck and you're direct speaking directly to that so the future is ossified by the past and the present and you said something like collapse is therefore you're saying, and also
1: with the Walking Dead collapse, our vision of a total ossification of the of the future, where society collapses, our vision of collapse has also been colonized by the present because the the sort of present moment of like 2010s woke culture, for instance, that also gets extended into this future scenario of collapse that haunts civilization through popular media like the zombie film, because the zombie film was always a critique of like consumer culture and so forth and yeah, like, you especially
0: know especially D- dawn of the dead which is one of my favorites yeah. but dude i was just talking to conan who was a, my previous guest about exactly what you're saying and i have a question for you um you might not have an answer because i just thought of this this morning but so japan right they have this uh, motif ever since probably start it probably goes longer back than this but i traced it back to godzilla and you have this like um, this radioactive monster monstrosity well, he's not radioactive, but he's formed by radioactivity right, who comes right. and then uh, it uh, um, enacts a civilization ending destruction upon uh, their urban centers. And then this plays out over and over and over again. Uh, Attack on Titan, Akira, Nosko, the Valley <laughs> of the Wind, especially the manga. It's more than that. Um, yeah. And then even in other ones like space ones like Evangelion, they have the big mech, uh, the mech suits that they wear, these big giant creatures. So it's kind of easy to figure out what they're doing there because they had the Hiroshima and Nagasaki catastrophe right. as well as the firebombing of Tokyo, right? So it's like the psychic replaying, like working out the trauma, the, the the cultural trauma of that. But what the hell's going on with America? We never had that. We never had our cities bombed. We we had 9-11, mm. but I mean I mean, that is just like if 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 what we're doing post-911 with all these catastrophe movies is the same thing right. that Japan is doing, then we are like the the civilizational uh shih tzu who 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 cowers and pees <laughs> on the floor every time the door slams too loud if if you're gonna you yeah. know and if you look at things like a serbian film and some uh German, oh yeah really, <laughs> yes. like really dark stuff philosophy right? of the knife and so. and germany has a lot of uh, i forgot what they call it now but uh, that that dominatrix stuff that um that borat and even uh even uh, michael myers like parody with the guys
1: uh oh yeah it came from Fassb- Fassbender had a little bit of things. Too yes, yeah. totally.
0: But my point is, is these folks have this cultural catastrophe in their past and you can see it like playing itself out right. in their art and they're like try- trying to work through it. Either they're like neurotically stuck on it and they can't get past it or this right. is their way of getting past it, right? Right. What, what, is our what, is the- what is our excuse? The 2008 crisis, the 9-11? I mean, what happened to America? We, we're supposed to be at the top of our empire here. We won think, we won the cold war
1: well I think that um what's that type particular type of manga anime where it's like the young hero usually young male um the, no what's the example like like um like like kind of like uh, oh what's that one uh jojo like jojo oh yeah um, yeah 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 uh well evangelion
0: is probably an example of that too yeah
1: yeah cowboy bebop um oh god what are they called um they're very similar to how pro wrestling actually is developed in japan as well in
0: terms of oh what's it called i don't know but what's what's your point about it though
1: um like that whole like the hero has to it's very different than a western animation hero in that the hero has to like Plow through his own problems with fighting spirit, with a, uh, with Tukan as they call it in Japan, and they have to like, not just overcome their limitations, but like the story arc is somewhat different. Um, I think like the those franchise that really created it all was of course Berserk, right? Um, but when it comes to America, the question that's a very good question actually, and I wonder if when you see a lot of popular apocalyptic media in the North American context, uh, because there's been a few Canadian examples as well. Uh, I think that the infrastructure always stays and it's never a threat from the outside. It's always a threat from the inside. Yeah. It's that's always, a good point. Like the Walking yeah,
0: dead is like cultural decay. It's exactly not, it's like, not, yeah, good point. Yeah.
1: And also the cities and the, ruins of a civilization are very much similar to like the ruins of rome still being there but yet you know the barbarians at the gate come inside it's more of like the ruins are there because society has completely lost its ability to govern itself and i think like the neurosis of america is that through its geographic location it's pretty much impossible for like a huge land force to invade America or, or Canada, apart from like if Russia wanted to go through, and apparently they're sending, they're pinpointing the spots right now as we speak on the targets to deter Russia to go into Ukraine. Oh my God. Um, By the way, help Udler, help Udler. No, um, um, It's so, but that again is a ridiculous security theater because the thing with American post-apocalyptic media is that America has always succumbed to its own success as a civilization and so it collapses either because of some weird like cr- lab creation that creates the zombie apocalypse or through some kind of internal threat or through some kind of like um will be a good example uh, that one where the only counter example would be in the 80s with Red Dawn which, I mean, that's like... I was going to bring that up. Yeah.
0: The only counterexample is that, but you also have... Um, Red Dawn could be like a zombie movie or like a UFO alien invasion type of movie.
1: Yeah, exactly. The UFO alien invasion, I think, is unique to America because of its connotations with like the space age and all that. But I do think the vast majority of Amer- of North American and even European post-apocalyptic films very much comes from internal threats. It comes from like total cl- decay and collapse or like some kind of pathogen or some kind of crisis of modernity. Um, whereas in European European horror cinema is slightly different in that it, it is like what you were saying, like it very much is like the threat from the outside. Like um, the one movie that everyone cites, I know it's become like so Reddit and like, you know, I generally hate like a lot of these Overabundance of like YouTubers that do film analysis because like it's such cheap, like people don't actually want to read books anymore, right? So you have like very highbrow film analysis, but the one that people go to over and over again nowadays is uh come and see. Is it come and see or yeah. The one where it's like the kid going through um trying to, you know, go through survive the Derwinger group. <laughs> like um you have that's a pretty good example of how. That one particular regime in the 20th century gets turned into like almost a mythical supernatural force that is evil, like pure omnipotence. And like I know a lot of people like on the edgy or right wing would say, oh, it's propaganda. But I think that like that that has a marked difference from American post-apocalyptic cinema. So it's like, yeah, that is well, very interesting. I,
0: I agree with you uh there's two things going on here first of all i think uh key performance indicators is the zero hp lovecraft story that's the one i was about, referring yeah. to that's where everybody was. has Neuralink in their yes. brain and so when yeah. they're at work they can't fuck off uh because they're being monitored at all times yeah. yeah um two things in response to you the first is that you are correct but you're only talking about one type of post-apocalyptic film because there was that rash of movies like 2012 Armageddon oh, yeah. Sunshine, yeah. uh and other movies where you see big uh civilization ending uh catastrophes happen from the that are, outside that brings yeah. cities down, you know, uh raise them to the ground or destroy the, the entire planet Earth. But to your point, to get back to the QAnon uh barbarian guy, what do they call him? The QAnon what? Shaman. Yeah. yeah, the Q Shaman. I didn't think about this back when you said that, but one of the things we're seeing with with not just the serialization, but also um, just well, let me let me tell you my idea. Maybe you can contextualize it better for me. But there is this return to sort of uh, pre-civilizational um, Nietzschean uh, values, right? Mm-hmm, Where mm-hmm. you you if you're in uh, Boardwalk Empire, or if you're in The Sopranos, or if you're in uh, Mad yes. Men, right? Yeah, you use your your wit. And your powers of rhetoric to sort of manipulate the people around you, get yourself out of trouble, um, and this this goes back to all sorts of examples. Whereas, right, the Q shaman is this like guy with his shirt off, and he's he's hairy, and he's muscular, and he's very primal, yeah. and he, he only eats raw elk meat, right? Um, same thing with Breaking Bad and um, The Walking Dead. The well, only ever va- watch Banshee? Never heard of it. But the only Banshee mount-
1: is an episode is a show like that. But, the only
0: values yeah. that will, that you can use in those worlds to survive is like the, the barbaric pre-civilizational sort of like uh, Hobbesian values of like yeah. existing outside, outside the, 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 well, for him, it's the Leviathan of the king. But then um, Aristotle has, you know, if you don't live in the city state, you have to either live like an animal or like a god if you live out in the wilderness. Um, so it's like these people are, are outside the confines of like the liberal order and like the edifice of like liberal culture and civilization with all its institutions. And right. they have to, uh, they're either living like after the collapse in the walking dead, or they're kind of living like in the underground, like the interstices, interstices of uh, breaking bad in the, in the crime underworld, where right. you, you have to be like a certain type of cunning that doesn't involve like your reason or your rationality, or it doesn't involve your skills of rhetoric. It, it basically involves killing them before they can kill you. Or well, always having the enemy's number and being one step ahead of them, which is how you survive in the jungle. It's the law of the jungle. It's not the law right. of, you know, the clean uh, toga-wearing Athenian forum or agora where you where you, you meet uh, your your peers and you debate and you engage them in this dialectical debate, and uh, you know everybody well, walks away happy.
1: Yeah, I would problematize that by saying that The Walking Dead is precisely the realization of the law of the jungle. That blonde beast. Uh, vitality but it's the negation Of it by trying to recapitulate liberal Institutions and societies And rationality by How saying so? that Well because the whole premise Of The Walking Dead is that they can form civilization Again and that they could like co against groups that have um, Adopted that law of blonde beastism yeah, but, but they my, always my defeat them about, right <laughs> right you're right about that <laughs> yeah, yeah. however my and point we can have about, interracial lesbians and so forth
0: <laughs> my point about yeah. serialization and the prolonging of the current moment is that they never actually right. do it just keeps going on like they yes. never actually yeah. do yeah. come like i said before right. i'm repeating myself but in the the night of the living dead it ends with the sheriff and his posse sort of uh hearkening to a future in which order is reestablished yeah yeah and, yeah, but, and same yeah. with uh the Cormac mccarthy the road when yes uh, when the yeah. kid goes off when the, the family, kid yes yes it's yes. like a reassertion of 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 the values of a previous yeah culture i was gonna say generation but really a previous civilization and to go into the future you have to adopt uh kind of pre-civilized values and right. my whole my whole point about the walking dead is it just keeps going on and on they never come And and they even like run through the different experiments in the first few seasons. First, they go uh, in the, in the comic (laughs) book, they go through the suburbs. I don't think the suburb scene is in the show. It might be like one episode in the show and they have to flee the suburbs. And then they go into the prison industrial complex, which is the the governor. Yeah. Yeah, And they have to, they have to flee that. And then they, they find terminus, which is supposed to be this utopia, but it's really just a factory cannibals human into cattle Um, and on and on and on. And it never ends.
1: Yeah. And even like nowadays, I mean, I've got to admit, I haven't watched the new season because it's just been like another cult, another thing, another, you know, and it's like, we're going to find Rick Grimes. Rick Grimes is now our Christ figure. Right. Um, now they have this, uh, you know, super secret, actual real government. Well, that but is even like, think uh, about it, though. Even know.
0: think about Rick Grimes as the savior. He's not about turning the other cheek, though. You know no. what I'm saying? Like, he, no, no, <laughs> he, he's totally the blonde beast who doesn't stay his hand uh right. and and lashes out like when he um he does whatever has to be done that scene where he bites the guy's neck out to save his son that's kind of like the that what i'm talking about distilled like his son's about to be killed i think he even gets his eyes shot out or something i and think he, carl he was no... supposed to
1: be the savior figure but then they killed him off because yeah,
0: yeah because the show did so well um but yeah so that's my point but listen uh something that you brought up a while ago that's very relevant to something that you said and uh, gonna sound like a quick abrupt change here but no we can loop it right in
1: hmm.
0: because you use the word ontology right that's right. a deridian term that uh, mark fisher picks up yeah you also yeah. mentioned sam chris talking about uh, what did you say the the the, the boomer the, well the future uh parasit uh the, the the present parasitizes the future yeah what
1: was it you said and then um the past nostalgia boomer nostalgia parasitizes the 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 present and makes the future of youth culture an impossibility in right and that's their, that's yeah.
0: exactly what's happening uh with Ready player 1 they're kind of trapping the millennials in this uh they're yeah. parasitizing the boomer culture to kind of like exu exhume whatever cultural uh capital they possibly can like squeeze out of it and it's like it's like keeping culture on this like drip of uh of uh parenteral nutrition that's just not going (laughs) to give you enough enough to go into the future on it's just like yeah you know so yeah so explain what hauntology is and 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 how that applies either to walking dead reddit player one or whatever just you know explain the uh the deridian term and the way the way mark fisher uses it because he talks about this all the time yeah he's the one who he's the one who says um what's that it's kind of a hackneyed phrase now that... Capitalist uh, realism? No, well, yeah, but he says it's easier to imagine the end of capital... The, it's easier to imagine the end of the world... The sun world.
1: exploding, yeah. <laughs> it's
0: easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. So that's right. what his answer is to the question I posed to you about why is America and the West so obsessed with uh, apocalyptic right. literature and everything. But yeah, hauntology, well, hauntology.
1: I'm going to be... Well, I'd probably butcher it, but essentially hauntology is the force of virtual of the virtual haunting the present through the let's say you know how in proust you have the concept of virtual time or in searching of lost time where he for example takes the tea and the petite madeleine crumpet and he like all of a sudden remembers his past and his mother giving him tea when he was sick and uh it's very much like that the reverie of a memory that comes from something opens up a virtual space that becomes real again through sensation. So Hauntology in a similar way is sort of like the possibilities of a future that never came about, but could have come about haunting the present and always being there. Its infrastructure is on top of the real, but it's always eternally frustrated for whatever reason. So Derrida talks about it, but the reason Mark Fisher talks about it is because like, let's face it, you have this very much like perfect like millennial and he wasn't a millennial but like his audience you know zero books people zero book sells. it's like this perfect like model and sad boy form of leftist politics where the but then he he sort of tried to break away from that and saying that during the 80s and the 90s in britain in particular where he comes from there was these like ripe possibilities for the new left to go in these weird cultural directions. And he said that, like, imagine if, like, I don't know, Maggie Thatcherism never happened. Imagine if, like, the neocons didn't invade the Middle East. Imagine this. Like, he talks about this when it comes to, like, film and literature analysis and so forth. But hauntology has become this, like, cultural buzzword because it literally is the possibilities of that 90s post-Cold War mosaic society end of history being fulfilled and instead now with various crises from 9 11 onwards that millennials have lived lived through in the west right um that possibility of a replight utopian future was robbed from us and so ontology is sort of like the cultural artifacts of that time period haunting the president. This is why, you know, zero book sells and Varso sells. Varso tards and people that write for Jacobin magazine always talk about, you know, the worst people in the world um, always talk about vaporwave and how that is an expression of the critique of like that cultural consumerism, but a critique that almost in a way plays into this very um repel, like replight cultural consumerist nostalgia, because that, world of the 80s haunts us and this is ah uh, ironically enough how fash wave came about as well because fash wave is a nostalgia for like a right-wing version of that which is like you know the the eternal like fascistic hope of like marrying both like modernism and futurism with like total traditionalist primitivism well that's what i was saying before
0: yeah. about like uh the all these cults popping up this proliferation of cults could potentially turn even the
1: rate this is happening i don't want to name names well they could turn into some sort of uh
0: emperor worship um like they did in in uh in rome with caesar what i mean by that is that this digital technology gives their message uh room to sort of rally behind in a in a strong way like a strong man you know what i mean so it it creates this third position and i'm not talking about duganism Uh, This third position in our American politics, where we have this uh, this false dichotomy between the Republicans and the Democrats, we now have, as Trump proved to us, uh, we now have uh, a a third platform, which is which is the Internet. And he used Twitter. Uh, Reagan, of course, used television and FDR used the the radio. It creates this uh, other platform that uh, this uh, a demagogue. Or a populist can take his message right to the people, and I think that's why you see like a like a fascist or like a uh, a populist movement growing up online because yes. it's it's the perfect medium for that political reality to come about.
1: But but I would caution this line of thinking though because I don't want to buy into the like just. Fucking ridiculous nonsense, bread to crap about the radicalization. The radicalization pipeline is real because these no, people have totally, made it real. That's
0: totally different than what I'm talking about. Oh I'm not yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, that. But it's worth that is worth talking about because it's it is made up. The radicalization pipeline is fucking made up. Right. And if you don't believe me, watch the QAnon documentary on HBO because <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, they. I mean, you don't have to watch that to find out. What I'm saying it because it listen,
1: all, it, no boomer knows who Andrew Anglin is. Okay, no boomer right. knows who like any far right. They know, but they know Q though. That's no totally. You know I mean? Yeah, they don't anyway, know. I it mean, just,
0: it says in yeah. that video that there was a or in that documentary that there was a uh, like a congressional hearing that said that uh, the the Christ Church shooter was not yeah. radicalized by 8chan, but it was too late. That and not that I. I'm not pro 8chan. I've never even gone on 8chan, but the point is, is that they use they use propaganda to try to shut down the platform that I'm talking about. Right. right. Um, and they immediately linked it to this uh, massacre that happened in New Zealand. That yeah. That that the congressional hearing or a senatorial hearing, whoever whoever under underwent this uh, investigation found that it actually had nothing to do with 8chan. But the no. damage was already done. They shut it down. It's obviously a political hit against Trump and Trumpers. You know, not that there wasn't stuff going on on HN that's objectionable, of course there was. Oh,
1: God, there was tons, yeah. but Right, Um, I think that uh, when it comes to North American culture in particular, there is the sense that the trajectory of history was going one way, then it was taken from us. This is what they took from us. And you were mentioning the the Q documentary, and uh, I think these online radical movements, the reason they've cropped up is because of the same sense of like the future has been robbed from us. And, but yet when it comes to the strongman in American politics, there still is a press. Here's the thing, I'm Canadian, so I have no right to talk about this. But, But historically America, through its mythologization of its own past, its own political past in particular, I think there's easily evidence to suggest that and I know like some Atlantic writers have talked about this and all, you know, but of course in the negative sense, and you know, for all my criticisms I have of Trump as well, there is a precedent within American political life in American political history and cultural history to say that there always was like a demagogic populist that can come about to water the tree of liberty, however that manifests, right? Not to Fed Post. But I think that hauntology really did play into this because, you know, as these you know zero book sells have pointed out, Trump represented this like brash Gordon gecko nineteen eighties decadence and this like nineteen eighties like maximalist uh kitsch um version of art art deco where it's like he is the emperor coming in to bashfully, you know, speak the spectacle of trumpism is this leading of this new po- political life in america this new politics of populism through this very much retrograde 80s decadence of like you know very he very much is i think even Bapp says he's like um the the working man's millionaire the working man's like rich brash leader through like you know this fusion of maximalist aesthetics and mcdonald's and like 1980s uh pop culture television you know you're the fact that he was in wrestlemania like and he pummeled vince mcmahon like that says it all to me you know that really is the indicator of the 2016 um cultural renaissance that has recently been bespoiled by a number of different issues, which I won't get into, but let's just say that nostalgia wave of 2016 Trumpism that really was indicative of a hauntology trying to realize itself, maybe ultimately failing. But yeah,
0: for sure, it's, it's and through
1: it's, the aesthetic more than anything, because was that's there truly what a solid? That's what he won on. Yeah, there is no solid populist like. There is a platform there, but those platforms are ultimately. The, the idea of Trump is like mediated through aesthetics only almost he's purely an aesthetic, like quote unquote, postmodern president, because it's not like Obama where it's like, you know, Yale law graduate, uh, we're going to have this like, you know, um, elaborate policy wonkery. Cause like here, like it's funny. Cause, um, A friend of mine wrote about this as well, how the 2010s Obama era was like this literalist, like liberal, like the age of the policy wonk, the age of like the Matty Iglesias people that would like, you know, their, their, their version of fun was going on blogging heads TV and talking about, well, here's how the healthcare bill is doing. Like Trump just erased all of that nerddom. He was like the truly aesthetic maximalist force of like, now politics is going to be the aestheticization of our of politics sorry
0: he the, yeah he he captured uh the the feeling of a fading cultural mindset or a fading yes cultural exactly. affect yes. and he was able yeah. to ride that he was but the
1: last gasp he, of it
0: yeah. He well he might be the last gasp of it if, well, if it can continue yeah. we'll have to see where things go but he could be mm. the last gasp of it however the way i see it to, to relate this back to uh digital media is that he was of the old world. He was of the yes. analog world. He made himself Very a star much so. through television, but he was able through the skills he learned on television to, to, to uh, adequately grab the reins of the digital media, yeah. Twitter in particular, but also like going on these uh, internet radio shows and stuff that had big audiences that didn't. Well, have he wanted info wars. Exactly. Yeah. And they didn't have a main, a mainstream uh, platform like on Fox news or whatever. Uh, And by doing that, he did take over Fox News. I mean, he took over the GOP, uh, the the GOP primary machine that that way. But the next demagogue, I think, is probably going to arise out of the digital world. It's going to be a PewDiePie or a or a uh, Jake Paul or somebody like that. Someone Someone who I mean, because think about like Justin Bieber. He's one of the first mega stars who was born on YouTube. He was born in the digital realm. Like. There's got to be somebody before him, but he's the first one. There that were comes bands
1: like there were music genres before him. like No, but uh... I mean how
0: big he got though. He, he's oh, a mainstream yeah. success now. And I think yeah. our next president, our next populist president, right. Is going to be totally of the digital realm, but mm-hmm. he's this hauntology thing might be over. It might be gone. He might not, uh, the, his, his aesthetic, the next aesthetic may be this fash wave that you're talking about. Maybe. Uh, it may, because, because, um, it's, we find ourselves in an interesting uh, turning point in our cultural history, though, because these types of people are often reactionary. These types of figures are often reactionary in these political movements. Like reactionary
1: in the purest sense of like reacting to the current. Yeah. So the
0: question is, will our digital uh, populists, our digital demagogue, be a reactionary? Uh, I Usually that's how populism works, but... Um, it seems like um, maybe you could also define neo-reaction a little bit because Nick mm. Land, I don't know if he came up with that term or if Moldbug did, but Nick Land tried to enunciate it in uh, the Dark, the Dark Enlightenment, dark enlightenment and, yeah. and, and a lot on um, xenosystems. Well, right. what neo-reaction is? It's 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 sort of this uh, amalgamation of futurist thinking as well as as well as uh, reactionary politics to progressivism. Right. I don't know if you want to give us a clips a quick side definition yeah. of neo reaction. Well,
1: I would say neo reaction's dead though. But um it
0: can, well, okay, what took its, its place then?
1: Um the e, the e dissonant, right? Because the problem with neo reaction was it was an amalgamation of things that could by definition never come about or rather never like coexist with each other because on one end you have like the more buggy and like very similar I would say to the policy wonkery of like um reviving old thinkers and having a very like American Anglo imperialist like empiricist um n- like view of the political through the reactionary thinking of people like Schmidt and uh De Juvenal. And he really uh inspired a lot of people to I Carl mean Lyle. I'm talking about Molebug, not like current Yarvin. Uh
0: yeah Carlisle was his main guy. If Carlisle, I yes.
1: Yeah. Um so you have that side of it but the landy inside comes specifically very again again same roots as mark fisher because who is fisher's mentor right yeah yeah ccru Nick Land. the CCRU. you yeah. yes you have plant who is lesser known but her her work is very good oh yeah and she she's a forerunner yeah. for like the trans
0: ideology movement yeah These and also drug culture thinkers go yeah, on and, Go on. sorry and,
1: well the trans stuff but also uh she takes the reins of like harway's like xeno um that's that's another one who's inspired by plant uh like cyborg and xenofeminism feminism stuff like that um you have plant on one end of like the cultural left uh, you could say generally you have mark fisher who is like Going into the, like weird acid communism and the dissolution of boundaries, and uh really like reviving Marxism for like millennials, uh, up until his untimely, um, unfortunate and harrowing. Uh, rest in then peace. you have rest in, rest, peace. rest in peace, Mark Fisher. Uh, then you have Nick Land, of course, who is right acceleration, who is really the forefather of accelerationist thinking, and who is whose academic concepts have like really shaped whole generations of thinking, even though he is like at this point basically buried in academia because of his, well, you know, well, yeah. <laughs> his right wing turn, his like boomer right wing turn. Um, so land represents the futurist element of, a like going so far into right wing thinking that the human is erased, but not in the sense that the libs in academia, the post humanists think of it, his sort of anti-humanism is very much informed by the sort of the text singularity of the outside, which is, you have to remember the outside. To land, there is no distinction between present and future. It's I know it's a meme at this point, but like the AI future is bleeding into the present from itself, right? From its creation in the future, so the outside of human temporality, the outside of the Kantian like nominal lim- uh, phenomenal numinal distinction, that numina to him is that force of the future AI. It is that sort of let's say reenchantment of the the cabbalistic and the metaphysical. In the very end of Fang Newman, he talks about this, where you have the machine now becomes this like cosmic life force that is going to erase the sort of meatware of the human. And we're gonna have to just like live with it. And he said that, you know, crypto and things like that are also another way in which we have abstracted human functions into the post-human and digital. And uh, I'm not very much like, if you want to talk to a really good Landian, um, read Meta Nomad's book on Nick Land. Uh, He is much more of a land scholar than I am. But I think that uh, pretty much you can say that that side of like the horrorist, futurist aesthetic of Nick Land uh, that represents another strain of new reaction Because again new reaction is united by This total rejection of The Trajectory of history from the enlightenment onwards In that you know liberalism Is ultimately going to bring about the end of history And it's going to bring about this like opulent You know perpetual peace society And uh, we're going to just Live with it and we're going to eat the pod you know. Sorry eat the pod we're going to eat the bugs And live in the pod um, It's sort of like a rejection of also the moralization of liberal values throughout history and it's saying that these much older values are in stark contrast to what the enlightenment has brought about through like you know largely um anglo-french liberalism and uh it's really the, if you could say that one uniting force of new reaction it would be this rejection of like the very foundation of liberalism and how it developed throughout history uh, but other than that, like, neo reaction just fell apart from the usual, like, you know, nerd infighting and um, the fact that, like, a lot of these ideas are basically just like um, because of the pervasive libertarian strain in it. You could say that um, these, like, tech nerds that have, like, libertarian ideas, um, a lot of neo reaction is basically just, like, neoliberalism with the mask off, which, I mean, that's in a whole nother video for a whole nother time, but I think, like the critique of Neo Reaction has been like, you know, basically it's just a lot of these ideas just recapitulate a lot of these ideas just recapitulate the system to begin with. So you have well, like a lot of like Trads, for instance, you have a lot of Bappians, for instance, who would like say that like these nerds in re- neo reaction are basically just like going to end up with the, the same like global liberalism irregardless. So yeah, make of that what you will
0: all right <laughs> you know like well man yeah. i actually have a response but we're going very far off into the weeds here right um, so i want to tie it all up with the thing i originally had you on my show to talk about and we can link it to hauntology in a way because you make art you paint and you do woodblock engravings and what other mediums do you work in? Do you do digital um, art? Do you make digital art? No, I don't.
1: I, I eschew digital art. Um, <laughs> not that I'm totally against it. I think that, um, I'm just not good at it. Um, but I, I think that digital art, uh, it, it will never be able to possess the same aura that the like actual fine art tradition can. Yeah. Totally. Um,
0: agreed. Totally. Agreed. I
1: know it's pure snobbery, but like,
0: no, it's true pure, though.
1: I have friends who are digital artists, but I think that, um, Yeah, basically, what I do, I'm a painter and uh, I'm a printmaker. So I mostly do woodcuts and wood engravings, relief printing and lino, but I'm getting more into uh, like dry point etching with like either copper plate or plexiglass uh, or like actual like engraving printmaking. Um, I don't think I'll ever venture into like chemical engraving, but maybe who knows one day.
0: Well, the type Um, of art you do is it's connected to a long-standing tradition and an evolution of the form uh, from its rudimentary form, or maybe it's, right. even it's a uh, pragmatic um, utilitarian uses. And it, you know, at some point became art and then the art was perfected and you're continuing that tradition. Whereas digital art is totally uh, de-worlded. It's unembedded from any sort of tradition and you can't, yes. you can't hearken back to it. Like I said, the way you could take Warhol's diamond dust shoes and trace them back through Van Gogh to an actual uh, situation, right. reality in the world, an actual culture, and in a, in a real place. Um, uh, yeah. Digital art is totally dehistoricized, is totally ahistoric, ahistoric. Yeah. Um. And it's set adrift in the cultural uh, void of the digital realm. But I also, a side note. I also think it requires less talent to make digital art be, or at least at least yes a, diff- no. a different yes type a of different, talent. A different, yeah, type, a of different talent type of, type of, type of that talent that isn't necessarily itself yeah. an artistic talent. Um however, that being said, like I, I mean, obviously it sounds like I'm giving you like a compliment for what you're doing, which which I am, but do you ever feel like you're working in an archaic art form and you're, Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. That's the whole point. Um, It it sounds like you haven't. Okay. So you're doing it conscientiously then. That's good. I'd like to hear that.
1: In the one sense it's um, the problem is I think that digital art is the main thing is some of the, it's the main vector. Digital illustration is the main vector vector nowadays of cultural diffusion. And um, whether I'm sort of like rebelling against that, I think I'm rebelling that against that in the sense of illustration itself has become the primary medium of like how people achieve an aesthetic experience nowadays, whether it's through like Marvel movies or it's through like digital illustration or it's through like um, manga, comic books, blah, blah, blah. I think, like, fine arts itself, like, has really, like, shit the bed in terms of its relevance. And there's a number of reasons for that. And I think that, of course, like, people are going to say, well, you know, the modern art world, uh, the the contemporary art world is, like,
0: trash, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to have to have you back for an episode solely on modern art. On the contemporary art art world, yeah. It's too late in the episode to get into that. But, yeah, But I don't don't agree that contemporary art destroyed fine art. I feel like it's a symptom of its decline.
1: Exactly. And I think that I'm purposefully trying to like, not just quote unquote, bring it back. But I think that fine art has a relevance in ways that illustration or like serial work or like graphic design simply can't for a number of reasons. But at the same time, the tradition when it comes specifically to printmaking, um, the tradition I'm working in is more along the lines of viewing printmaking as fine art rather than viewing it as illustration or an artisan craft. So I'm more inspired by people like uh, Kirchner, um, Edvard Munch, um, to an extent, um, like Albert Dürer, you know, people like that. Whereas illustration, yeah. fine art and illustration used to go hand in hand, like especially the Dürer brothers who were doing the majority of woodcraft I'm um, sorry, the what are they called? The dumazal brothers were doing the majority of Victorian wood engraving for illustrations, such as um, what's the children's book, Alice in Wonderland. They did that. Uh, they did some religious works and you had like in it, il- the work of illustration, you have the weird sort of juxtaposition between looking at it as an artisan craft and, as opposed to w- w- looking at it as a fine art right so for instance you had um in the 18th century you had the british uh, author children's novel person uh what's his name rossetti who would say that well i'm sending it off to the woodmen i'm sending the plates off to the woodmen the the manuscripts and so in a way it was sort of like lowering that incredibly meticulous incredibly like hard to do skill of wood engraving Lowering it down to like the the, um, being like another artisan that is like a wood chop, a firewood chopper, or like a millwright or someone like that by saying, "Well, I'm sending it off to the woodmen," meaning that like, wood wood engraving itself was lowered to the level of like you know it's just part of a craft. H- right?
0: Hilarious to me because I'm yeah. so I'm so, out of the loop and and unread on art that the only example I can think of is in the movie Mallrats. Where the the penciler and the inker are arguing with each other, and I guess it's a I guess it's a real feud in real life uh, before comic books went digital that the pencilers say we're the ones drawing it and it's not, and the inkers aren't art; they're just tracing it. And the the inkers, right? Right. So it's probably like the same debate, right?
1: Exactly, it's the exact same debate because in Japan, for instance, you have a because of the popularity. Of ukiyo prints in Europe, especially when you know Japan opened up to the world. By the world, I mean, you know, Europe. <laughs> um, you had the separation between um the person who was doing the illustrations, the people who were actually doing the wood great the wood cuts, because wood engraving is different. That wood engraving is um you can have finer detail because it's using the end grain of very tight uh older forms of wood so boxwood cherry so forth and you're using engraving tools which are like these little instruments whereas like woodcut is doing is using gouges and knives to along the side grain of usually cherry wood and in japan that sort of aesthetic look comes from what they call mukuhanga which is the multiple color key blocks right and so you had the separation between people doing the actual illustration and people who were carving and people who were printing. So they all required their own specific skill. And so the carver had, of course, an immensely important job. And the printmaker even had an immensely important job. You have like a whole row of people because you would like trade off these like uh, rice paper um, sheets. So like one person would do one color, another person would do another color, so on and so forth. Right. So, for instance, you have, like, the most famous one being Hokusai. So, it's, like, where it is in printmaking that aura of the work of art begin and end. You have, like, the, the guy doing the illustration. You have the printmaker. So, what you had in Europe is you start to, you started to have, like, with in the context of fine art, not in the context of illustration. Or, like, in poster making, which was what, what ukiyo printmaking was you have now the artist doing everything. So Van Gogh and to an extent Picasso, now they learn how to do various methods in printmaking. Uh, Edvard Munch does printmaking, does his own color blocks. And so me, that's, yeah, exactly. The Great Waves by Hokusai. Okay, Hokusai
0: yeah. is for those listening, the guy who did that famous Japanese wave with yeah. Fuji in the background. Just wanted to, sorry, keep going.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so you had um, Art Nouveau did this as well with like... Um, Artists that were doing Fine art But now they're Learning the process Of printmaking So that's the tradition I come from That's the tradition I'm interested in Because To me I like the ability To control Every step of the process And so I've Basically relied on These more traditional Methods of printmaking Because I don't want To just like Do a design And send it off To a place Which some artists do And uh I started off with woodcut because woodcut and wood engraving are like the two things that I call, you know, or at least in printmaking my home in a way like painting is a whole different thing because I'm very much inspired by, uh, the group of seven, uh, the, the Northwest school of like that came before the New York school, you know, of abstract expressionism and uh, other, you know, uh, people like Nikolai Rorish, um, like a lot of different landscape traditions and symbolist painters and so forth. And so like, that's a different thing, but when it comes specifically to printmaking, I think it's very interesting how in fine art, you have the ability to control every step of the process because that itself leads to um, like, especially when it comes to engraving is that you have an ability to have chance involved because for people who know this, when it comes to plate engraving, or what they call intaglio printmaking, which is um, the difference being is that um, with relief printing, you're rolling ink over the top of a surface, and you're getting a negative image. Whereas with intaglio, it's any method where you're driving ink down into a like a line or to an incised place, and you're getting you're picking up through the sheer uh, force of the press, the wheel press. You're picking up. You're driving the the wet paper down into the line. Right. So the the reality is that when it comes to that method of printmaking there is no like every print looks different and that's what i love and i know people don't get it but like i do love the ability to make every print look slightly different because in itself that becomes even though it's part of a series it's a singular work of art
0: yeah then, no that's yeah. that's excellent that actually ties right yeah. into what we were saying about uh about uh, well you use the term aura i don't know if benjamin yeah. Originated that term in the origin. Uh, excuse me, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproducibility, but yeah. uh, but uh, Jameson, like um, his introduction to postmodernism, the cultural logic of late capitalism, sort of juxtaposes Heidegger and Benjamin, which yes. I think I think they must be in conversation with each other. Uh, if you read those two essays, um, yeah. So so Heidegger talks about how, for example, of course, different sides of the war, though. <laughs> no, of course, of course. Oh no, there's a whole. Oh God.
1: There's a whole <laughs> lot of
0: work to be done about uh, the, 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 the the socialist and the the fascist thinkers of the early 20th century and how yes, they yes, they yeah. sort of complement each other but also go against each other and I would oh put god yeah Lukacs in there and obviously yes yes Mitt's, yeah. uh, legal thinker uh, yeah. but my point though what was my point my point is that you're talking oh uh, so two two things so you're talking about how um, the aura is maybe diminished and what what printmaking because uh you can be reproduced and it's like this whole team of people making it this is exactly what the beginning of benjamin's essay is about right and 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 heidegger uh the reason why he talks about you know being embedded in a world is that he says we have to we have to grapple with the fact that you can take a beethoven symphony and transpose it or transcribe it excuse me onto multiple sheets of paper and ship them all over the world and and all those different places somebody can perform them just like you can have a painting uh, travel the world um, and hang in different galleries in different places in the world. So you have to get at what is the essence of the work of art? How is it, what is it about the work of art that is more than just the material that is being shipped around the world? And with Benjamin, it's what is it about the work of art that's uh, more than just the, the, the reproducible uh, product or commodity to use a Marxist term? What is it? That makes it a work of art and not just a product or commodity. And he talks about its aura and the aura is similar to what Heidegger says is the essence of the work of art. Right. Um, And and I think you just did a really nice job of elaborating and enunciating exactly that about how uh, the the craftsmanship and the meticulous attention to detail goes into it. It's just like fucking uh, film photography versus digital photography. I mean, you had to be like a, like a, like an engineer, or, yeah, or, you or, did. You know, you did. Uh, of, yeah. of film, you had to be able to go into the dark room and 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 develop the film. Even know
1: it, like the la- the lenses that would produce certain effects.
0: Yeah, of, and the different chemicals, yeah. how the different chemicals affected it. So, all of that is diminishing now as the digital uh, technology takes over. Takes over. But also,
1: dim- digital is this like simulation of previous art forms and art styles and now they've just stylized them so for instance you have the ai filter what's it called that everyone uses now i've used it i'm actually probably going to make some paintings from it um Weibo, webo
0: wait a second this i wanted to bring something up to you and this may be exactly yeah. what i wanted to bring up uh explain i'm going to google that to make sure we got this so right. you
1: have in for example in people that do neoclassical stuff with digital art you have like layers and you have brushes you have templates you have different things that are meant to simulate organic artistic styles and movements but now they're digital and they're at the you know realm of your fingertips if you will and so i think that the problem is when it comes to this like digital bastardization of these various art styles to me, that's what makes me more critical of digital art than anything else is that you're taking something you're making into a style. Like the, the people that were creating the ukiyo woodblock print ma- prints, they weren't thinking of it in terms of like, this is a style. It was only stylized relative to the European art forms that were going on at the time. Even in traditional um, Japanese and Chinese art that is informed by Zen Buddhism or Taoism they don't really think It's part of a ritual they don't think of it As in terms of aestheticization Like the Japanese didn't have a term For the aesthetic until like The Dutch and the British came there Like in the Americans they didn't really think Of it like later on it came about with Kabuki theater and all that but when it comes To like for instance tri- traditional um Japanese ink paintings Or the no theater Act these were very Ritualistic things that weren't belied by the sense of this is an aesthetic th- property this is like a form of art they didn't have that conceptual framework they just viewed it as a product of their own practices in other realms same with well, the chinese yeah, and it's literati hi, it's, painting. High art, yeah. it's
0: high art versus low art
1: yeah like no, but no, no but not even, this isn't even art in general like for example literati painting became stylized later on with Sesshu and other painters that were exposed to people in the West that were exposed to like, you know, the Impressionists, for instance, they knew about this stuff like haponism in uh, the West. They didn't think of it as doing a work of art. They thought of it very much as a spiritual practice, right? They didn't. Um, and so nowadays, everything is become consumed by the aesthetic, including politics. So it's really weird in that. It's very similar to what Sioran said. I I love this quote. He says, you know, as art proliferates, it becomes equally... um Art becomes equally mediocre and impossible to do, meaning that we have this proliferation of the aesthetic in the image, but at the same time, the image itself becomes cheapened. And the, the the key point that I think that a lot of people don't understand, or rather people in the political right, is that when you talk about Benjamin in like, the loss of the aura, he saw it as a good thing because it's like, well, now we can have like... The politicization of all art, and we can have like commie propaganda yeah No, I don't. I don't yeah. love that
0: essay. I don't love that essay. Yeah, he politicizes yeah. it, and he also does say that he says there's like I can't remember the exact quote, but something like there's now an opportunity for like proletariat art because of this. Because
1: you have to realize he has a very specific spiritual, like messianic version of communism and Marxism, where he looks at in that essay, "The Angel of History" by Klee, Paul Klee. And he says, like, how can you reconcile in a single moment that wreckage that just piles up through history itself? And of course, I'm not going to get into his, you know, cultural roots, but like he's looking at it through the lens of the angel of history can only be a fixed in horror to the past but it keeps going forward and the bricklage and the wreckage of history keeps piling up how can you reconcile that in a single moment and he says that through the obliteration of the work of art and its aura now you can have this like mass democratization of the image that can create what he calls the dialectical image which is I mean, you can even, you can even apply this, I guess, to like a lot of right-wing forms of uh, cultural expression, like the meme, for instance. But he says that the dialectical image is what's going to free people of the wreckage of, you know, the absolute, you know, consolation of history is through the destruction of the aura. And you can have the dialectical image, which will now, you know, have this like new proletarian man stuff because now, you know, people are free of the shackles of the aesthetic. Um, And now you can produce like, you know, communist realist posters, I guess. Yeah. And that's that's what I was
0: saying about comparing and contrasting people like Lukács, Benjamin and Heidegger, because they were they were all like uh, utopian in a way. Yeah, I wouldn't. They're a little bit more utilitarian than utopian because there was kind of a crisis going on in their culture that they had to address. So it was was just as much uh, like desperation as it was uh, utopianism. But they, they all came up with uh their own version right. of, of surviving the, the encroaching nihilism of of uh, the collapse right. of modernity into the post. Heidegger
1: retreats, he says only a god can save us, right? Yeah, of like, course, he, because he's the yeah. only one
0: who's uh, realistic. <laughs> Although that being said, I don't think Lukács or Benjamin ever lived long enough to see that dis- the disaster. No. Benjamin he and Whereas Hero Heidegger, when, yeah. Yeah, and Heidegger did.
1: Yes. Live yeah. to
0: see the disaster. Um I think we should end it on that note because Mm. I need to talk to you about um uh, absurdism, surrealism, dadaism, and modern. Yeah, we have to general, do this again. But that's yeah. way too broad of a topic to start two hours in. So can I, uh, I I I say this every time my listeners are gonna get bored of hearing it, but one of my favorite things to do is put my guest on the spot live on air and demand all right, beg that you come back and do this again. And we we there's so much more to talk about.
1: Yeah, we have to do this soon. I think we a- have to. Absolute yeah. blast.
0: Absolute blast. I mean, we could even maybe get the next one recorded before I even release this one. What do you think of that?
1: Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Love we could it. We do that. Love yeah.
0: it. Well, this this is the first time me and Gio have been in touch with each other for over a year. but This is the first time we've ever sat down one-on-one and it's it was even more fruitful than I expected it to be because <laughs> I've been, I've been, uh, you it know, you made, <laughs> made me think about a lot though. Over the yeah, years, and I you could too, tell. You too, man. You too. Thank yeah. you very much. I could tell by the way you talk that you've read some of the st- the words you use and the the concepts that you use. You've read a lot of the same stuff as me, but a lot of people that I kind of hang out with online haven't. You know what I mean? Mm. Because especially mm. like, you know, this commie shit. Like, like yeah, I, get, I know.
1: Uh, I, and I the mean, people I don't who even, do read
0: it, they're terrible. Like, I don't uh, know if I'd well. <laughs> be able to critique it as well as I can if I hadn't read it and see right how spiritually right. empty it is and how trapped. The thing is 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 socialist critique of art is trapped within like the Marxist framework. Yes, and they don't yeah. they don't see outside like the long view. I think that's part of why I land There are people
1: that some that like I think Adorno did, but like there is this
0: like I, I mean I, I meant people who are writing today though. Oh oh God no yeah. Oh god no or, 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 or <laughs> over the last over the last twenty years, even back to Jameson. Even Jameson, yeah, my my main problem with him is he too like it doesn't seem like he's read too much outside of like communist socialist
1: well nowadays you have like youtubers who are i I guess taking up the mantle of like aesthetic critique of the left and they're all terrible people like jacob yeller and uh bread tubers like um the only good one i think is probably he used to go by cuck philosophy now he's something else but like i've seen him Well like people that write for Varso, like these people, they have the aesthetic sensibility of a reptile. Like really, like you have like well, communism,
0: communism and socialism is inherently anti aesthetic movement.
1: Yes, yeah, I would say so. Um, there wasn't, there was a little bit of a period within Russian. And I would say even in North America and Latin America, where you had socialist movements that did have an aesthetic sense that were married to futurism. You had the Russian Russians. Yeah, that's true. Italian so as well.
0: Like, don't, don't, don't. It, don't yeah, uh, and, yes. The and Italians. Italian
1: futurism. Yes. And uh, you had a period, but then that was all crushed by socialist realism.
0: Right. Like that was like pretty uh, much. Yeah. And uh, that's true about Italy as well. Like, yes. Uh, yeah. um, 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 De Sica. I'm forgetting yes. the other guy's name. Who's the one that was murdered? Was it's not Antonioni?
1: Oh, um,
0: there's another one that was murdered yeah, by fascist thugs. It.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot yeah. who it was though. Forget. But who. anyway,
0: listen. But you had they, yeah. We'll talk about this. I'm gonna I'm gonna give yeah. you the last word. The last thing I want to say though is just for anybody who's made it this far, I don't have any fucking idea who all these internet people you're talking about are. <laughs> <laughs> like I've recognized. Probably the only yeah. one I recognized was uh that, that guy that does the Theosophy stuff that you had on your show. What's his name? Oh um, The Long Hair and the Goatee. Sticks Hammer. Sticks, yeah. Other than him, yeah, I don't even know who these people are. Okay, <laughs> so a... Jacob
1: Jacob Geller, he's a like Oh, pa- oh Chris to... as well. So...
0: Sam Chris. I've read him before too. He's good. Yeah. He's yeah. definitely read Mark Fisher.
1: Oh yes, very much so. Um
0: wasn't no, he like he... wasn't he like a writer for Vice, who got doxxed?
1: He was um, part of the Chapo crowd. Oh, he's part of Chapo. I, I think so, but he, he did write for Vice. He wrote for, I think he actually is going through his PhD right now in literature. I don't mean doxxed,
0: I meant canceled, sorry. Oh, very
1: viciously so for some like ridiculous Me Too thing where... I don't know. He wanted a blowjob from one or so. I forget. It was so stupid. But he really got a taste as much as he hates the political, especially like the dissident, like E right. It's like literally the only people that read him nowadays are like weirdo, like reactionary types or like people who are a bit more highbrow. Because You've- anything he's writing now is like a million times better than anybody in Jacobin right now, the Jacobin have- Magazine. I mean,
0: have yeah. you what is the name of these? Uh, are they theory cells? The left wing, uh, yes, me- theory me- cells. memers who make memes about, uh, yes, like Nick yeah. Land and Deleuze. Uh, well, no, they're actually, big some on Instagram. Of them are- they're big on Instagram, like that guy, Beyond Woke, Theorygram. And problematic. Theorygram.
1: yeah,
0: Beyond Woke and Problematic. And who's the other one? There's a couple others, like he's the only um, one, um, Dank Deleuze, and Dank Deleuze uh, is big, um. Dungeons he and, was actually dungeon, delusion dungeons or dungeons and Deleuze or something dungeons, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That guy he actually did a great interview with my friend Drug Call Gang. He is a drug. I was on his podcast recently. I want to. Um,
0: I want to check this out because his Instagram page is phenomenal.
1: Yeah, a lot of theorygram... Okay, here's the thing. Ninety percent of theorygram people are like varso tards and theory. I know. Cell, I know. Like, I know. But beyond woke, people.
0: Beyond woke is based though. Beyond woke, cool woke is fuck.
1: based. Um. Deleuze and Dragons or whatever, Dungeons and Deleuze. He's like, he has like a lot of like lib opinions, but he's a good guy. Um and certain people that I venture with, I guess, I know a lot of people that you can say are quote unquote post-left, like my buddy Adam Lair, who is a prolific, amazing art critic. Um, System of Systems podcast. Um, I've been on his podcast and I'm gonna start writing for him actually. His blog, um, but you have like a lot of posts left. People who are in these circles, who they're in like a very like weird precarious position yeah, because the left, are. like the Jacob, like the both the Jacobin people and the Chapo tards, they like viciously hate them. They like and these people don't have like nearly as much followers as like someone like Carl Bezier or like uh, some other ghoul from the Jacob from the the you know Chapo crowd. Uh, but they like, for some reason, there's this like little group of post-left people that like all of them get like ritually like hated on by yeah. these people with it's huge because, accounts. It's because
0: they didn't go woke, <laughs> first of all. They didn't go woke. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, they still stick by Nick Land. They love Nick yes. Land. And they're always tw- uh, uh, Instagramming about Nick, Nick Land. But I bring them up because that's how I found Sam Chris. They yes. like Sam Chris yeah. and they talk about him so I started reading yeah. his blog through them. It's The, the Loose like, pe- and Dragons. I just looked him up as and, and Dragons, and, Dragons. Yeah. and his avatar on Instagram is that famous Dungeons and Dragons picture of the the knight uh with the sword and the shield fighting the big red dragon.
1: Yeah. But it's funny though cuz a lot of these post left people um you have like Amy Therese who's a oh, good yeah, friend she's of mine one. and you have CRK um who I'm also friends with. It's funny cuz like they always have tweets dunking on the right, like especially CRK and like, they get like this vicious amount of like, well, as, as a, as a Blasian man, you could guess like, you know what they call him. Right. But it's funny. Cause they like have this back and forth where it's like the right wing on Twitter. They're like, fuck you. I hate you. You're a commie. I hate you. It's like, you're a, you know, gamer word, but yet the, it's like, it's nothing compared to like, how like? Oh yeah, the left goes way harder on this. They like legit doxx them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, my one friend, my one friend. I'm not well, going to name remember him.
0: Remember counterpoints? What happened to her? Oh god, oh, that was fucking oh, crazy, right, bro? <laughs> what mean, happened it, to Lindsay Ellis? How could they possibly move on after that? How could they, they possibly? They can't. they can't dude They're they done. Can't. They're done.
1: Here, you know, one of the most insane things I've ever seen is a mutual of mine. He's a really great guy. All right. One of the most insane things I've ever seen is, um, I have to look him up. He was on actually, um, recently, my good friends, uh, speaking of CRK, uh, the, uh, you know, the fed post. I, oh, I, I'm so sorry. I'm blanking out his name, but he, he put this picture up on Christmas of him and his parents, but he blanked out their face. Cause he posts his own face and a literal blue check mark from like the affiliated with like, you know, the Chapo people took his mother and meticulously tried to find a naked woman that had the exact same body type as her, did a photoshop of it, and said, This is what your mother would look like naked. I've never that's seen something as schizo that's a leftist
0: doing that to another leftist
1: to some, a post left person who hangs yeah. in her circles. Right. Like, like that to me, I, I, I remember seeing that and I'm like, that literally is the most insane thing I've ever seen. It's more insane than the way these people go after Amy. Of course, like, I guess I hate to say it. She's a great friend of mine, but Amy, you know, she loves the fight.
0: Oh, she totally antagonizes. She kind of
1: brings thing. it upon herself, but like, yeah. um,
0: she, it's funny though. It's great. Yeah. She's cool. There are
1: like a whole cabal of, um, people don't know this. I'm not going to mention the uh, forums but people who know, they know there's this whole cabal of fem cells who uh, follow Amy and uh, the Red Scare Girls. And they're on this one particular forum. And it's funny because when I did my wood, wood block print of Amy, they they mentioned me on their forum and they're like, here's this gay uh, art that this guy did of Amy. <laughs> it was just <this>, like simp.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: man. oh, oh. But yeah, so uh, this has been great, my good friend. We have to do this again very soon. We're gonna do it again. Uh, But we gotta specifically focus on what you wanted to focus on because we went through like this This rabbit hole of like. Well, it yeah, but it's good. It's
0: good. This whole show is about uh, you know the digital realm and the simulation kind of uh, uh, engulfing the entire world and creating a new world. And you are like right there on it with me. I didn't. I didn't have to prompt you at all. You've already. Clearly really. worked all this out, and you're clearly working on this. So that's why you were one of my main guys. I have guys a I bunch to of
1: continuous, like I have a bunch of essays I want to write um, on this topic of the aestheticization of political ideas and ideology. Yeah, and uh, maybe just as a substack, but also I'm working on a well, number of essays. In this, yeah, the main you
0: know, the mainstream definitely sees the aestheticization of politics as a devolution, and they think they, they take right. it as a bad sign for democracy.
1: But but was there ever But here's the thing though People talk about Trump as like this post You know Post-truth president And how Nowadays these Zoomers But when you really think about it All politics Relies on a fundamental Aestheticization I mean I know that's like A fascist point But like It's very true Throughout history Even like no, For the people see, that say that America, th- like what is Amer- American history itself politically is an aestheticization. It's a mythologization you know, of this, its own.
0: This idea know. might come from Benjamin because the first, the earliest yes. place I've ever seen that enunciated was in the origin, uh, excuse me, the work of art in the age of Mechanical That's where I'm production. taking it from. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I think that's the origin of it, as far as I know.
1: Yeah, and that's why people are definitely afraid. I even like, um, it, go out and buy from Terror House Press Ending Bigly. Um, oh, yeah? It was, yeah, I, my essay, I'm the only person that did a non-fiction, um, a non-fic essay. And there's a bunch of great literary pieces in there. Um, it's organized by a good friend of ours, Bill Marchand. Yeah,
0: he's hilarious.
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> and uh, But in my essay, I talk about this with the Trump presidency in particular and about the aestheticization of politics. So go and buy it. It's the only way you can read it because... I think all proceeds go to some men's charity or something. Uh, but I'm also uh, my good friend who's also in the book who helped organize it with Bill Marchant. My good friend, Billy, uh, Bad Boy Billy Pratt. Tell him to come on the show. I will, I will. He's a huge um, goal for me. He he uh, is organizing a series of essays about pop culture. Yeah. And I'm writing a essay in it called... Yeah, yeah. He is, he is. He's doing it. No, he and, just uh, sent
0: me an email yesterday about it. I didn't know you were involved though. That's awesome to hear. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I want to hear this.
1: I'm writing an essay called the impossibility of the heel about pro wrestling. And it's going to, yeah, it's going to talk about how the heel is dead and how in North America, at least, and how the heel dying is a symbol of our culture also dying because now we don't have the space to have a great narrativization of our own history. And I use examples of the two recent events in, if you're a professional wrestling fan in the 2010s There were two instances where um, It really like Spelled out the end of the heel One of them was the Muhammad Hassan gimmick Which was like he was like the terrorist Muslim another one is when Booker T and Triple H had their feud Which like oh, It's like like where Triple H Like boldface was just like posting racisms All over the place So <laughs> I have to
0: admit man I am so far out of the loop I have no yeah, idea what you're talking um, about
1: but it'll it'll be good it'll be good but uh basically like it's about how the heel like the bad guy in north america how it's almost impossible to have like a genuine heel because and what i talk about by, how What do you mean by heel? The heel is the bad guy in wrestling he is oh, okay. the Rito. he is like the the antagonist and nowadays um th- like there's sort of like this weird blending mm. where there's no longer like a straight appeal or a straight up face. The baby face is like the good guy. And so um, there's no longer like this reality because of various trends in professional wrestling in North America, at least. And also I argue that culturally um, you really can't have a genuine heel because the heel has always been the sort of template for the cultural anxiety of the civilization, right?
0: Quite heavy handedly. In wrestling. Yes.
1: So nowadays you can't have like, I don't know, like a 4chan incel as like a heel going because <laughs> AEW is the newest promotion. It's the, uh, it, all elite wrestling is like basically has like a lot of like, I would say like shit lib Reddit politics involved. Um, kind of like the trend in the way in which like Reddit and like the new left, you could say the cultural left has taken over a lot of what ostensibly used to be known as like The pursuit of like you know usually young white men so like metal music comic books video games pro wrestling right yeah for sure and it becomes a spectacle of like super technicality and um divorced from the political realities that gave birth to it for example pro wrestling used to be largely like blue collar people um so nowadays you have like you really can't have in a promotion like AEW where like they're they're uh Mm -hmm the money mark that finances him, Tony Khan, he like, you know, bans Hulk Hogan from events because Hulk Hogan, you know, posts the gamer word. And, uh, you know, you can't have genuine heel work because imagine if you had like a character, a gimmick where it's like a four chaner, it's like a, a, a Lord, a, uh, a, a, a right wing incel is like the, uh, the gimmick, right? Half the crowd would be cheering him. You can't have that. Because, because there's literal tranny, sorry, I gotta say it. there's little trans people in, in, in AEW that are wrestlers and you have like, you know, I know everyone loves him, CM Punk, but CM Punk said that, well, I would love if AOC becomes our president, but people are too racist and sexist for AOC to become our president. This is what CM Punk tweets. By the way, for those who are wrestling fans, if you want to see a good CM Punk match, go and watch a Kenta match in Japan because he stole all of Kenta's moves. I'm sorry, I'm I'm going (laughs) off right now. But imagine if CM Punk, Mr. I'm a male feminist, went against a character who is a a 4chan incel. Could that work nowadays? No, you can't. Because there is no agreed upon bad guy in this hyper-fabulized modern world. Because half of the crowd would say that 4chan incel who is a wrestler he's a good guy actually because he's beating the the shit libs or he's owning the libs in the ring um and you can't have that you can't have him owning the libs in the ring oh
0: my god <laughs> we could end
1: it here brother we're going on too much all
0: right oh join us next time in the astral flight simulation we're having geo back for sure
1: oh man